Welcome to Into the Well. I'm your host, Ryan Wilms. I started this show as a place to share my experiences and my journey towards living authentically and mindfully, and also to learn from those who are truly walking the path, healing themselves and inspiring others. By balancing the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, we can learn to live in harmony with ourselves and our environment. We'll be exploring different tools and modalities used to create sustainable well-being for a fulfilling life. So thank you for joining me. On this episode of the podcast, I get a chance to sit down with my own coach and mentor, Paul Check. I first found Paul's work through the Aubrey Marcus podcast, and it was really eye-opening and cracked open my perspective and understanding of being a human and what that means. At the time, the concepts they were discussing really resonated, but I didn't fully understand what they are. And I couldn't have really imagined having this conversation with Paul only a couple of years later. I've had a chance to work with him now for the last year and a half after first meeting him at his Zen in the Garden workshop. And it's been one of the most impactful and enlightening and healing processes that I've ever had. I was a bit nervous for this conversation, as you might expect, but I had a really good time. And Paul is probably the number one person I would like to have on this podcast. So it felt like an absolute blessing to be able to sit down with him and ask him some questions that I've really been pondering lately and hear his wisdom and feedback and continue to be guided and learn from the lineage of his own experience and the knowledge he can impart on us all. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Well, this is super exciting to sit down with you, Paul. Uh, you. I think if I had anybody on the top of my interview list, it would probably be yourself. Cool. At the same time, it's also uh, something I've been nervous about because <laughs> as I've listened to your podcasts, I you know, often heard you say, oh, I love you and I'm proud of you to the people you're talking to. I, there's a piece of me that's like, oh, I want Paul to think that and say that of me. I love you, Ryan. I'm really proud of you, man. You're, you've really come a long way coaching with me I'm, and you're... You're uh, stepping into your booties, man. You're you're doing good. So yeah. there you go. I love you. And Thank you. I'll give you a big, fat, juicy kiss later. <laughs> Sounds good. So I think for people listening, you know, you've been on a lot of podcasts and you've had your own now for just over a year. So I'm not going to necessarily dive into your backstory as it's yeah, kind it's of been, out there. It's out there about 1,000, 50,000 times. So I kind of wanted to jump into something that stuck with me over our time together. And it was kind of almost a throwaway moment in some at respects uh, in, in between one of our sessions. And I asked you when we were talking about souls, if you knew how many lives your soul had lived. Yeah. And you gave me a pretty specific answer. And I was curious to know if you'd be up for sharing that and, and how you came to that. You know, I don't really like sharing that. Just let's just say a lot of lifetimes okay. uh, in a human body. Um, um, that kind of information tends to act funny on people. They're mm -hmm. not ready for it. Um, the way I came to that is I asked my soul <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and that's, you know, a practice I've been working on for, you know, I don't even remember many, many, many years. Um, and it's, uh, as I'm sure you've been finding out from our work together, it's a real relationship you got to develop. And the hard part is to get your ego out of it. And that's one of the important, uh, parts of meditation and learning to, um, witness your own thinking process because there's a distinct i call it the ego's signature versus the soul's energy signature so if you pay attention to for example if you're talking to your soul what you've got to do to really listen you have to completely shut off your thinking process 
But if, for example, if I'm talking and something comes into your head, you think, oh, I got to ask him about this. You can feel the ego engaged thinking process. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking with your soul, if you don't develop a distinct awareness of when the ego is talking, then you will actually get tricked because the ego will quickly learn to impersonate the soul, particularly if you're asking your soul something like, should I eat these cookies? And you're really craving cookies. Because the ego really loves instant gratification. It's a control freak. It always wants its own way. And it's very crafty at learning how to manipulate the environment to get what it wants, which is why people do what they do in relationships, tell lies, white lies, partial truths, half-truths, mm -hmm. sideways truths, um, make excuses to themselves about why it can't be their ice cream or their gluten that's giving them trouble. So they'll come up with all sorts of elaborate other things that might be and go see doctors well the whole time inside of themselves at some level. They know every time I eat those cookies, it makes me feel shitty. And mm -hmm. I just keep on telling myself it doesn't. And I've spent $10,000 on creams and pokes and prods and tests. And the results are that I'm gluten intolerant. But I knew that all the time. Mm -hmm. So the the ego is, you know, it's, it's, it's really a form of artificial intelligence that's created by all the ideas and all the fears and all the uh, biases and programming we have. Um, but if you get uh, enough, what Jung calls complexes, a complex is a, a neurally charged network of associations. So for example, if you, as a child, most of us have memories of Christmases, birthdays, and celebrations where even in a, a violent or tumultuous household, during those times, there seemed to be peace and it was safe to be at the dinner table and you were less likely to get criticized or demeaned. So what happens is the ego complex as it's building, it makes the association between ice cream or cookies or cake and I'm safe. So if all of a sudden you start having health problems like a fungal infection or a parasite infection or a food intolerance, and it links back to a food that has the association that I'm safe when everybody's eating this, the ego will have a really hard time with you not getting that because to the degree that you're dealing with challenges in your life, you're stressed or any number of things that you use the sweet stuff as an anchor to create this impression of safety in your life, mm -hmm. then the ego will impersonate the soul. Mm -hmm. So it's a real growth and development practice that requires a commitment to the truth and a commitment to um, loving yourself um, more than you love your escape routes, mm -hmm. your excuses, and um, blaming other people for things that you should take responsibility for yourself. Yeah, definitely. And I think that sort of idea of developing spiritual discipline through meditation, you know, it's so easy to not you know, there's so much convenience around us now that it's easy to not develop that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, from what I've learned from, from yourself and in my experiences that it's absolutely essential yeah. if you want to really sort of develop that relationship with your mind and ego and with your soul. Yes. There's another component that I will share, and that's what I call spiritual courage. Most people don't really have much spiritual courage. And what I mean by spiritual courage is 
what you find out fairly quickly when you start really developing your relationship with your soul is that your soul has a lot more confidence in you than you do. So, for example, if I'm out creating a rock sculpture, I always let my soul choose the rocks. And sometimes my soul chooses huge bloody rocks. And I need to put the next rock might be chest height. And I'm looking at this rock going, you're kidding me? You want me to lift that? That's, uh, I might get hurt. And my soul says, well, then take your time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I say, well, you know, so my ego will start telling my soul all the reasons that I can't do it. But my soul will have nothing of it. It says, well, then be creative. Mm -hmm. You don't have to pick it up in one move. Stack some rocks up and roll it up there. Mm -hmm. And then my ego says, I'm too lazy to do that. Can't mm-hmm. we just do something else? And my soul says, well, then why'd you even ask me? <laughs> yeah. What are you asking for help if you don't want help for? And, you know, it, it can be things like maybe you get into a fight with your girlfriend or your lover or your spouse about something. And you you then have to sit in, in, in quiet and say, okay, this is what happened. Your soul already knows because you and your soul are the same thing. And, you know, then you might say, was I wrong in what I said or how I behaved? And the ego will not want to hear that. Mm-hmm. So th- whenever you have a charged um, situation like that, where there's an emotional charge or the need to be right or get your own way, that's when you have to really watch carefully that the ego is not impersonating the soul. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've had many times in my life where my ego impersonated my soul and it got me in trouble. And then I found myself upset at my soul. I go, why did you tell me to do that? Why did you mislead me like that? How can I trust you? Right. And my soul says, oh, that's not what I told you to do. Mm-hmm. That's what you wanted to hear. And that's what you believed you heard. And that's what you made up, but you didn't listen to me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've sat in my sauna, which is where I do my kind of evening meditation and do my um, spiritual healing for the day and try to reconcile whatever I have to go through to kind of bring myself into harmony. And, uh, you know, I've had uh, many times where I sat there with tears in my eyes going, really, I guess I've really got to stop. I really have to be brave enough to let my soul guide me because I've found that when my ego is guiding me, my life is not nearly as rich or complete. And I'm not as vital and you know like if i want to watch tv at night and i know it's my bedtime but there's still a half an hour left in the movie mm-hmm. i know if i ask my soul she's she's going to say shut the thing off and watch the rest of it tomorrow yeah but my ego will say oh you know it's only half an hour you're having fun you know so it, this is why i tell people don't build your relationship most people wait till they're in trouble then to say oh my god oh my soul what do i do now i, I want to get a divorce you know yeah i'm out of money whatever that's the worst thing to do because mm-hmm. there's so much of an emotional charge. The ego is scared to death. So I say, let your soul choose the color of your socks, your pants, which shirt you're going to wear, whether you should hold your fork in your right or left hand, whether you should sit where you should sit at the table, mm-hmm. choose things that your ego really doesn't give a damn. You're, as right. long as you're going to get to eat, who cares? It doesn't matter what chair you sit at the table, but you'd be amazed how conditioned we get to sitting in the same place. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, When you start developing the relationship with non-threatening situations, you have time to really feel safe in connecting to the guidance of the soul and really learn how the soul speaks. Because the soul relationship is different for everybody. It depends on what your natural abilities are. So, for example, I'm very clairvoyant. 
So my soul can speak to me in images or even movies. Like I'll say, well, how do I lift that? And I'll see uh, what looks like a movie in my head. Or I'll walk into the gym and say, what do you want to do today? Would you mm-hmm. like to do pulling today? Yes. What would you like to do? And I might see a, a, a an image or a video of me doing a hang deadlifts or uh, my soul might show a picture of me doing kettlebell clean and jerks, but I thought I was going to deadlift. And I said, well, so does that mean you don't want to do the deadlift? And I might get a yes or a no. It means, uh, no, I want you to do clean and jerks with the kettlebells followed by deadlifts or something like that. Other people are more auditory, so their soul may be a voice within them. And it'll be a very unique voice that really often seems to come from everywhere at once. Not mm. like if you're listening to me right now, you can tell where my voice is coming from. If someone's talking to you from behind you, you turn around and say, yes, you know, like your girlfriend's right. calling you Ryan. Mm. But when your soul talks, I find that it comes from every direction at once. So you have to really pay attention to how you communicate best. Some people, um, they just have an immediate knowing. There's no words. It's almost um, like a telepathic communication where the message comes um, all at once. So there's seeing, there's hearing, there's knowing, and there's also feeling. Some people just feel mm-hmm. the answer. They don't even know how it happens. Mm-hmm. So they're more um, clairsentient. They feel beyond their physical senses. So the point I'm making is each person has to spend enough time to figure out how do they best reach the the depths of themselves, because the soul really means the, the, the total consciousness within you. Mm-hmm. The ego is a component of the soul. It's sort of the, it's how the soul's masquerading in life. It's yeah. like going to a costume ball. Mm-hmm. The soul is the one behind the costume. The ego is who Ryan thinks he is or mm-hmm. acts out. You know, I'm this, you know, who's Paul check? Who are you? Oh, I'm a holistic health practitioner. That's part of my show. Yeah. But the ego goes lifetime, I mean, the soul goes lifetime to lifetime and puts on any of the costumes that it mm-hmm. thinks, A, will be uh, great for its growth and development, B, things that it just wants to do, mm-hmm. right? The soul wants to experience everything you see going on all around you. It wants to experience sex. It wants to experience fame. It wants to experience challenges. It wants to experience growth. It's, it even wants to experience pain if that's what's necessary to evolve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. My my impression is that it is that sort of eternal part of you that learns and grows through experience, and like you're saying, sort of understanding your own soul language can help you to create that inner dialogue and and be able to follow it. But I think it's interesting with the rock stacking um, example because in that case, your ego is saying like that rock's too big, it's too dangerous, don't do it. Which but, is but, rare for my ego. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and that can be, you know, don't run that far, don't jump yeah. that high, like whatever, yeah. don't Today's drive that Today's a good day pace. to rest. Right. And, um, you know, our ego in that case, is it's really just trying to keep you safe. But it's interesting by following your soul, you're able to sort of expand your ego's sense of what you're even capable of. Yes. And and that's a, a very big thing because most people are... are um, thinking and operating way below their potential mm-hmm. um and we have a society of of uh i hate to say it but low achievers mm-hmm. you know av- carl jung said the average man can never be successful well by definition if you're average you're not successful uh, the average person's not very healthy the average person's not very fit the average person doesn't really have good effective thinking skills they just do what they've been programmed to do 
Um, the average person isn't very creative in their sex life. The average person doesn't reach their earning potential, but they just walk around complaining and say the rich people have it made. They're lucky. And so, you know, because the soul is really God or unity encapsulated as individuality, which is necessary for God to experience love without the soul taking on individuality. So you could say the soul is the subject. It's what's listening to me inside of you. It's what's listening to your own thinking. Mm-hmm. It's like, so it's, it's what's your ears hear what I'm saying, but it's your soul that's listening to what your ears are hearing. Right. It's your soul that's listening and seeing to what your brain's producing as images and sensations. It's the listener that's listening to the listening. It's the seer that sees the seeing. Mm-hmm. It's the feeler that feels the feeling, right? So it's, it's actually behind all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the soul, um, the soul's not really here to be mediocre. Um, if you consider that if God is inside of us, well, God creates universes, stars, planets, moons, galaxies, mm-hmm. supernovas, right? So when somebody's kind of just dragging their ass through life, God's like, oh my God, I'm falling asleep here. Come on. I mean, let's get something going here. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, God's a novelty generator. You know, there's no two stars that are the same. There's no two planets that are the same. There's no two moons that are the same. There's no two rocks that are the same. There's no two plants or flowers that are the same. There's no mm-hmm. two bees that are the same. And there's no two people that have the identical fingerprints. Even identical twins don't. Mm-hmm. So you see, God loves novelty. God's a, a novelty generator. So when you start acting like everybody else and living like everybody else, you're boring the shit out of God, to mm-hmm. metaphorically speaking. I'll go, come on, you know, let's, you're God. Get on it. Yeah. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> yeah. And on that uh, note, I guess, like something I've been like looking at within myself is the idea of creativity and, you know, having spent the most part of my career really sort of driven by my mind and ego, I feel like what I've deemed to be my creative output has really been quite a derivative of other ideas. Mm-hmm. And now what I'm sort of working towards is shifting towards letting that creativity come through my soul. And that is much more in the idea of a novel idea. It is. It's also dangerous uh, to the ego because most of us begin our lives and spend about the first, usually about 35 years doing what we think we have to do to be loved and accepted by our parents and society and to achieve what society's definition of success is. So in our culture, you know, if you drive a really cool car and people think you make a lot of money or you do, I mean, if you make a hundred thousand bucks a year, you're in the top 2% of earners. That's kind of the cutoff zone. And so uh, most of us, because the child in us needs to feel safe that mommy and daddy loves us. We need to know that our school teacher accepts us. Um, If you get too successful or too beautiful or too fit or too healthy, um, you know, the old saying misery loves company. People start paradoxically saying that they love you, acting like they love you, but trying to sabotage you because they don't want reminders that they're not living to their potential. So, you know, they, they try to pull you off the top of the hill. Mm-hmm. In Australia, they have a thing called tall poppy syndrome. And so what they do is whenever they see somebody shining, and by the word, the actual meaning of the word sin, the biblical word sin is to shine. So if you are shining brightly mm-hmm. and 
and it's interpreted by others that you're making them look bad, even though that may not be your intention at all, they will try to pull you down. So the paradox is, is that we spend usually about the first 35 years of our life driven by our ego, which is largely created by our social programming, which is based on what other people think that we're supposed to do in order to be successful, to be loved, to be beautiful, to be mm-hmm. whatever it is, mommy's good little boy or girl. But we reach the point typically by about 35 where we realize we have to start questioning our own thoughts and beliefs because they're not creating happiness in our lives. Mm-hmm. Or we're burning ourselves out working for money, but it's not really fulfilling. We got the car, we got the house, we got money in the bank, but we're still not any happier. But we thought those things would make us happy. So, but typically it takes about 35 years for a person to get to where they really begin to question their own thoughts and beliefs. And that's only the beginning. Then you've got to be brave enough to be different. You know, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm a pretty different guy, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, you know, and I get attacked a lot. I get accused of running a cult. I get accused of being a hippie, um, you know, being a weirdo. Um, People attack me for wearing Tai Chi pants. I mean, the list of shit that people attack me for. And paradoxically, it's often my students that do that. So they love me when I'm teaching classes and they can go off and make money and fulfill their ego's desires, Mm -hmm. but they don't like it when I live in ways that go against their parental programming and social programming Mm -hmm. because it makes them feel afraid and it makes them feel afraid. Well, what if people find out that my teacher does plant medicines or my teacher has two wives or my teacher Mm -hmm. this or that? So you you see this sort of paradoxical love-hate relationship. Yeah. So the more you align yourself with your soul and your true potential, the more you depart from the consensus reality. Mm-hmm. And the more you stick out or shine and the more people attack you, which is exactly why Osho said freedom is the most dangerous thing you'll ever experience. Yeah. And going through that process, you know, starting with questioning those those personal beliefs and thoughts and, you know, identity that you've become intertwined with beginning to shed that you know like you said with students as an example like they might be open to your teachings but then they judge you for some other way that you're living yeah and you know like we've often talked about that's usually a reflection of their own story you know part of their own shadow that they're judging yeah um they're projecting their fears and biases and judgments Right onto me because they're not willing to look at them in themselves, mm-hmm. or they. And this is a general statement; it's not just me. It's it's just how human beings function. That's what projection is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I still find myself doing it. The difference is, I find myself catching myself doing it and then asking the questions about it much quicker now. Yes, exactly. And real shadow healing is very deep stuff. I mean, you know, <laughs> all you got to do is look at all the people you judge, right? So, you know, just to show you how deep it can be, find the gay person in you, find the pedophile in you. That's enough to trip most people out. Most people will just flat out deny there's a pedophile in them. And I say, well, if there's pedophiles out there, there's one in you because the source of everything in the universe is one. And it's got an unadulterated willingness to experience all of its potentials, whether they're socially acceptable or not whether they're religiously or morally acceptable or not, or it wouldn't be happening. Mm -hmm. Find Hitler in you. Find Charlie Manson in you. Mm -hmm. And by all means, find the Dalai Lama in you. And Mm -hmm. find your favorite athlete in you. Find um, the great singer in you, too. I mean, many people are afraid of their own voice. 
So mm-hmm. find Christina Aguilera inside of you. Find Michael Jackson in you when you're dancing. Um, so, you know, most people have as much of a hard time as finding the gold and the gems inside of them as they do the darkness in them mm-hmm. because the darkness is usually socially unacceptable and the gems of them make them um, afraid of that much attention. Yeah. And I think that, you know, my experience is trying to step into that gold within my myself, but realizing how scary that is because we've created this safe existence with our ego and to often step into that potential of our soul in this lifetime, in this expression, we have to let that die or abandon it or let it crumble around us and become a person that we don't know if we'll have will be loved in that state. Yes. Even though our like conditional love right now isn't as pure and wonderful as what we want to step into. It's what we know and letting go of that is pretty terrifying. Yeah. Not knowing if you're going to be loved is usually an indication that you're still have a lot of room to grow into loving yourself because that means that very insecurity means you're codependent on other people for uh, creating a sense of being loved, Mm -hmm. which is the domain of a child. To be whole, you have got to get to the place where you can love yourself. You can take care of your own sexual needs so you're not codependent on your partner to always give you an orgasm or make you feel good or mm-hmm. meet your sexual needs. And if if you've ever been in a relationship with someone that expects you to meet their sexual needs, um, it gets to the point where you feel like you're, someone's masturbating with your body. In other words, you're just a tool of their pleasure, but it's not really pleasurable for you. And most people don't realize that they're doing things, they're doing the things that they're doing and living the way they're living and thinking the way they're thinking because it makes the ego comfortable. But the reality of it is they don't realize that they're limping mm-hmm. and that most people are limping. In other words, their their sense of being comfortable is actually um, a measure that's based on what everybody else is doing. But like I said, when, when everybody else around you is limping badly too, mm-hmm. and it becomes normal to limp, it's easy to forget that that's a person who's got an antalgic gait. There's something, there's, there's unresolved pain in that gait. You understand the point mm-hmm. I'm making? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like if an athlete sprains an ankle really bad or hurts an Achilles or gets plantar fasciitis and they don't get proper skilled rehabilitation, the pain may go away. But for 10 years later, a skilled therapist like me goes, you're still limping. Right. And they go, what are you talking about? And I film them or I have them run across a force plate Mm -hmm. and they're 12 or 15 pounds heavy on one leg relative to the other leg. And that explains why they have chronic low back pain, chronic neck pain, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But you see, they had no idea they were limping because it was a compensation that happened when they were in pain. And so the body now hasn't been programmed to realize it does not have to avoid the pain. Mm -hmm. So the ego is actually usually limping in order to fit into a culture that is also limping. Yeah. And when we call that comfort, I say, okay, how's your relationships going? How's your, how's your sense of joy with your work? Where's your, how's your pride of workmanship? You know, it doesn't take me long at all to find out, oh, they're actually really limping quite a lot, but they're denying it because they don't want to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. We just get accustomed to that sort of restricted state and version of ourselves that's limited. It's fitting in. Mm -hmm. It's just enough to fit in. If you fit in, 
you don't get too much attention. You don't get too little attention. You just fit in. Mm-hmm. But for the soul, that's uh, that's a place of stagnation. Mm-hmm. That's when the soul, um, that's when the connection to the soul gets more and more distant because the more time you spend aligning yourself to the ego, the more conditioned you become to live that way and the harder it is to hear the still small voice of the ego, the, the, you know, the, the, I mean, the soul, the soul really is silence that speaks. Mm -hmm. So there's a paradox there, but it's a real paradox. So what you've got to do is learn to quiet your mind. Like I said earlier, and spend enough time embracing silence, which most people have a very hard time with because mm-hmm. uh, for many reasons, a lot of people are afraid of silence or they, they have this sense of primordial emptiness in silence and any number of things, or it's like being in the dark. They don't like being in the dark and the silence for a lot of people is like darkness, uh, but they don't realize they emerge from the darkness. Light comes from the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, so it takes time to, mature into a a loving committed relationship with the silence because it's the basis of creativity think about it if you're um busy doing the same things you are always doing to avoid the silence how can you actually do something else Mm -hmm. silence is like the space between the notes in music if you take the space between the music out you don't have music you just have noise so paradoxically, we don't pay attention to the spaces between the notes. We listen to the notes. Mm-hmm. But an exercise I give people is listen to music, but focus on the silence between the notes. And you'll hear a completely different music emerge mm-hmm. because now you're really picking up the rhythm. The rhythm becomes more stronger because you sense the undulations in the rhythm. Mm-hmm. So Listening to the soul is like learning to listen to the spaces between the notes or the empty space. Like if, if you're talking to somebody and all of a sudden they stop talking and they're still looking at you, it does things inside of you. Like, mm-hmm. okay, are they upset at me? What are they thinking about? Yeah. Don't they like me? So the ego goes bananas with all that stuff because most people just are, they, they so are so desperate to have every moment filled. Yeah, because as long as the moment's filled, they don't really have to think or be creative. Right. So listening to that sort of quiet space between the notes in our daily life, could you say that that's, you know, that quiet space is there before every choice that we make? And the more that we can listen to that, be with that silence and quiet, we can make more of a conscious choice that's soul led rather than a distraction. In this example, silence and stillness are, are um, uh shall we say, synonyms of each other. Um, But the silence is always there. Um, It's like the dance floor. The dance floor doesn't move or do anything, but it knows about every dance step that's ever happened on it, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Because there's no dance you can do without that floor. Mm -hmm. And if the dance floor was moving around, everybody would be falling over. It'd be like trying to dance on a sea and a ship in high seas. You'd you'd have a really hard time. So the silence and the stillness Mm -hmm are the foundation or the fundamental basis from which movement emerges. Right. So what you do is you spend time quieting yourself and you spend time holding still. And as you get into a deeper and deeper relationship with silence, 
you learn how to space the notes, space the words, space the movements. Mm-hmm. You, for an artist, you know how to use the empty space to create the image as opposed to the immature artist who feels like they got to fill the whole canvas, right? right? So if you look at Zen art, they're mm-hmm. very good at using what's called the negative space as essential to creating the image and the impression that they're trying to give you. Mm-hmm. But you can't do that effectively until you can find that negative image in yourself, which is finding the silence. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, And back to the sort of dance floor metaphor, um, in your recent uh, episode about the pain teacher, you talk about how the spirit is the dancer. Yeah. And sort of where it's the sort of place that our inspiration can take action and... um, sort of the masculine to the feminine of the soul. the soul. And I was always, I was curious too, as I try to, you know, my ego tries to figure out these different components and how they interact with one another. Mm-hmm. In your perspective, is the spirit also an eternal thing or is it's, it more? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, there's a paradox that we haven't talked about yet and it's quite deep. So most people, you know, it's sort of like uh, it just throws them into gridlock. But I'll ask you a question, a couple of questions. You ever been tired, say, on a Friday night and thought, God, I'm going to sleep till noon tomorrow and just we're sure you're just going to lay in bed all day. But by about nine o'clock in the morning, you had so much energy, you had to get out of bed. Yeah. Okay. So what you see is hold that in your mind. You ever gone into meditation and found yourself entering into the silence, but all of a sudden it starts speaking and words and, and thoughts and ideas are coming out of nowhere and you're really doing your best not to say or do anything. Mm -hmm. So guess what? Silence is explosive. That's the truth. Silence is forever giving birth to everything. It retains itself, yet it gives birth to everything. And that's the concept in Taoism, way, woo, way, which means action without action. Mm -hmm. God's doing everything without doing anything. Mm Kind of like an axle on a wheel. If you look at the axle on your front tire, it doesn't move at all, but it'll get you to LA. Yeah. And if it starts moving, you're in big trouble. So the action of the wheel rolling is utterly dependent on the stillness of that axle. Right. So in that sense, the wheel would be the spirit? The wheel is like the spirit and the um, axle is like the soul that's, or the dance floor that's experiencing everything. Mm -hmm. But there's a deeper element and that is that you know if you say okay well if we ask what is god from the perspective of love it would be unconditional love well that which has no condition if we symbolize that it can only be symbolized as zero because anything else is a condition so if we say okay god mathematically equals zero well zero is no thing but paradoxically because it's no thing i have to ask you where is its circumference where is its border it's nowhere yeah but everywhere because god as no thing is the container of everything right you see so the point i'm getting at is that there's two inherent qualities to that which is unconditional or the source or pure potential and that is that it's empty of everything so it's it's absolutely receptive mm-hmm. but it's full of everything so it's constantly that explosive silence projecting its dream out, yeah. which is why in Hinduism they say 
the universe and all that is is the manifestation of God dreaming. Right. Okay. And you can wake up in the morning and not know you've dreamed. But if you go to a sleep clinic, they can monitor your brain and say, oh, look, you're dreaming. Every time you go into rapid eye movement, you dreamed, uh, you know, 14 times last night. And you're right. like, wow, I have no idea that I did that. So there's the, sil- there's this, there's the uh, abundance of activity in silence. Right. The point I'm making, though, is you, we know that within God or the source of all that everything, there's planets, there's stars, there's moons, there's a universe or multiverses, right? Mm-hmm. So there it is. There's the something that emerges out of nothing. Right. But what's between it all? Empty space. When you look into an atom, it's 99.999 to the sixth decimal point empty. Mm-hmm. Yet it's here's the table, rock hard, right? Yeah. Made of glass. Yeah. But it's 99.9999999% empty. Mm-hmm. So you see the emptiness of no thing, which is the container of everything. Mm-hmm. Paradoxically, is constantly in a transitional state because Ryan won't be here forever. He's going to get older and he's going to die one day. Mm -hmm. And if you build a a new house and it's beautiful and brand new, uh, a year later, something will start leaking and then the floor will start to creak and then the roof will start to leak. So this is why Buddha said the only reality that's permanent in the universe is change. Right. So what I'm pointing out is that spirit is the process by which change emerges because everything that you think of as is created is actually dissolving back into its original state. The original state, we'll call that a ground state. So one way I teach people this is I say, okay, we'll call the ground you're standing on, we'll go out your backyard with a shovel. The ground that you're standing on, we'll call it a net bank account of zero. Then I say, okay, here's a shovel, Ryan, dig me a three-foot hole. So you're going to create a three-foot debt. Mm-hmm. And then I say, now look what's right beside you. Yeah, what, three, what you, three feet of dirt. A three-foot pile. Yeah. So you see what happens is the emptiness that you created created a fullness that's standing beside you as a pile. Mm-hmm. And the emptiness in the hole wants to fill itself. And sure enough, if you leave that hole there, someone will fall into it or a dog (laughs) will fall into it or it'll fill itself full of rain. This is why they say nature abhors a vacuum. So what you see is that whenever you take something from the net account of zero to create something like a planet, a star or a universe, Mm -hmm. that's not its natural state. Its natural state is that of rest, which is the natural state of action without action. It's so everything that, we we have to borrow from potential to create just like if you mm-hmm. turn your phone on by the end of the day it'll need a charge right so it's got a deficit of energy then right. you have to charge it back up well the process of going from neutral to digging the hole to filling the hole yeah. that's spirit right so spirit is what we call the flow of energy and information that results in a net move from zero into something and that something always wants return to its actual original state which is no thing (laughs) right (laughs) uh yeah that makes sense and and i mean even in that idea of like filling and unfilling a hole or a cup or something it makes me think of just us as human beings breathing exhaling that's it inhaling exhalation you're doing something paradoxical you're emptying yourself Mm -hmm. okay so you're becoming more yin because now you have more space for the next breath. When you mm-hmm. fill yourself, you're more full. 
And the oxygen that you bring in is stimulating your sympathetic nervous system and your metabolic system. Mm -hmm. When you breathe out, now what was yang becomes yin. So the act of filling yourself, you could call it positive because you're bringing something in. And then the act of breathing out, you could call it negative. Mm -hmm. But when you bring something in, it creates an activity, but you have to eventually breathe out. So you alternate back and forth, positive, negative, positive, negative, positive, negative. Mm -hmm. And in order to have movement in any way, shape or form, you have to have a polarity differential because if all polarities are neutral, nothing moves. Right. You understand? Mm -hmm. So when you think you're creating a polarity different, I don't, I need more money. There's a negative. Right. Getting more money. There's working, building the positive charge. Now I got money in my account. Mm -hmm. I'm alone. I need a partner. I'm starting from a negative. Negative is desire. So if you look at love, the way I teach what love is, is mm -hmm. L stands for life. But life is the product of desire. If you don't want to live, then you won't engage life. Mm -hmm. Right? So the L in life means desire. Yeah. O means zero or pure potential. And VE means volt electron, mm -hmm. which is the electromotive force, which correlates to will. So to the degree you desire, you will. If you really want to buy a new car, even when you're broke, mm -hmm. you will figure out how to get the money, even if you have to borrow it. Right. Right. So uh, just think of that. Love is like a jet engine. The harder it sucks, desire, mm -hmm. the harder it blows, will. Right. And that's what makes spirit move. Love is really a word that defines potential coming into actuation mm -hmm. as spirit. And soul is ultimately the witness that's experiencing it all. So soul is the dance floor and spirit is the dance. Mm -hmm. So in that case, you know, the jet engine metaphor is very clear. The more we suck, the more we pull in. And that can be a powerful tool to achieve what we want to do. Mm -hmm. That's but what also, desire is for. And, but if we're not, you know, in tune with our soul, what we want to do probably isn't what we really want to do. No, it's what you you think your mommy and daddy wanted you to do or what you think you have to do to be loved in society or to get good grades or mm -hmm. to be accepted or that's social programming that's enculturation. And if you read uh, Robert A. Johnson's book on the shadow, he shows you that the way that shadows are created is by enculturation because what is enculturation? It's a set of rules, right? As I said in mm -hmm. my pain teacher podcast, Having sex with your girlfriend in the middle of a shopping mall might be fun, but it's not going to be socially acceptable. It could get you thrown in jail mm -hmm. uh, and people could react very violently toward mm -hmm. you, but it's a real act of creativity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in other words, um, if you have this creative sex urge mm -hmm. and you keep repressing it, then it's going to build up in you. And if you don't do something about it, you might end up having a drink to repress it. So for example, I'm a very creative person. You look around the house and you see my paintings everywhere. Mm -hmm. If I don't paint or build rock sculptures or create new courses or do something to express my creativity, I feel so pressurized that it's like I'm, I'm going to explode. Mm -hmm. So in order to deal with the amount of creativity that flows through me, I find I have to move it through me into things that feel good or or create meaning for myself and other people, which mm -hmm. is what the whole Czech Institute is. It's a product of my creative impulse. Yeah. And we all have that. Mm -hmm. But we also have to take responsibility for our creations. 
you know, it, it takes a very unique artist to be able to burn their artwork, mm-hmm. right? If I build an institute, I gotta I gotta make sure that the employees get paid and that the education's good enough that people are interested in. If you create uh, photography for fashion magazines, it has to be beautiful enough that they're willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So there is a responsibility that comes with creativity, and if our creative urges don't fit the consensus norm. You know, a lot of people would love to go dancing in the rain naked, mm-hmm. but most of them know that's a great way to have the neighbors call the cops and get put in jail. So the point I'm making is if you don't figure out how to dance in the rain naked in your backyard or in your bedroom or in the shower, mm-hmm. then you repress the creative urge. And that begins to stifle you because the God in you says, what are you doing? You're not godding. Mm-hmm you're pretending that you're not God. Right. And so it leads to addictions and it leads to um, challenges in relationships. Mm-hmm. A great way to point this out is a lot of women that are, you know, business women or successful women when they get pregnant and can't go to work and they spend oftentimes the first six months or a year really devoted to their child, find themselves going absolutely loopy because they lose their sense of who they are. And they're not expressing themselves as a businesswoman or as a musician or Mm -hmm. a dancer or an athlete. And so because they can't express themselves in ways that are natural for them to move their creative impulse into the world, it feels as though they're dying. They're going through a a sort of an identity crisis, which is also a creativity crisis. Mm -hmm. It's only when that woman can make the transition to say, what I'm creating is life. Mm-hmm. But you see, that requires a growth in conscious awareness. And it's not something that's common in our culture. Women in our culture, as quick as they can get a nanny to come in and stick a bottle in the kid's mouth, oh, breastfeeding's too busy. In fact, most of them don't even want to have natural childbirth anymore because they don't want to stretch their coochies out and they don't have time for all that. So they just get a C-section and get it over real quick. And so what happens is they try to avoid the opportunity to become creative and accept the opportunity to be a mother and see that as the most beautiful creative expression. I mean, my God, to create another human being inside of yourself. Yeah, it's insane. But we've grown to the point where, where women actually find that is not that exciting at all. It's just assumed that that's what a woman's body does. So if a person does not find ways to express their creative energy that actually have a nourishing effect on them, whether it be art, exercise, music, writing, mm-hmm. um, riding a horse, bicycle, whatever it is for, yeah. for everybody, then they start going into compensation behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and those compensation behaviors are uh, very profitable to the medical system yeah. and to therapists like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And going through that, you know, crisis of identity and creative crisis, you know, that process is so challenging. And, you know, from what I understand, you had to go through a similar process yourself when you were in your mid thirties mm-hmm. and getting injured. Many of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the, one that of was the, a big one though. That was a big, it sounded like a big one because yeah. not only did you have to deal with the physical challenge of it, but also the emotional, spiritual challenge. And the challenge to my manhood, um, for the listeners, what happens, I was doing a lifting stunt. Uh, I used to do these stunts where I would pick people up over my head. 
and uh, do lunges with them. So I would take even great big guys. You know, I got pictures of me lifting a six foot eight, 245 pound strong man over my head. But the funny thing is he couldn't lift me over his head. That's what happened. He was in my class and he was bragging about how strong he was. And I got tired of hearing it. And I said, quit bragging about how strong you are because you're not that strong. And he goes, what do you mean I'm not that strong? And he started telling me how much you could deadlift and all this stuff. And I said, I guarantee you can't pick me up and put me over your head. I said, but I can pick you up and put you over my head. And he goes, I'm six foot eight, 245 pounds. How are you going to do that? And I said, I'll show you. So I picked him up, put him over my head and did lunges with him in front of the students. And it resulted in me picking up everybody in class, including a Navy SEAL that weighed 210 pounds. And none of them could pick me up. Not even the badass Navy SEAL, not the strong men, none of them. I said, well, now you know why I'm your teacher. So now when I tell you to quit bragging about how strong you are, listen to me because you're not that strong. Mm -hmm. The point I'm making is, is, you know, I had developed a lot of strength and I, I, I was a boxer, a kickboxer, you know, a, a paratrooper, you know, a, a self-proclaimed silverback badass. Mm -hmm. And so when this guy fell on my head and blew out two of my discs, tore ligaments in my spine, I lost 26 pounds of muscles in four weeks of muscle in four weeks. I, the whole left side of my body was numb and begin to atrophy. So my left leg, my left butt, my left chest, my left arm, the whole left side of my body started to atrophy and disappear. Um, I was so weak, I couldn't even carry a briefcase without it just killing my neck. Uh, my neck was so fragile, it felt like even if even a four-year-old put me in a headlock, it might tear my spinal cord and kill me. If somebody tried to rob me or something. I would have no defense. I couldn't protect my wife. Everything about the manliness in me, the lion in me was now very lame mm -hmm. and very broken. And it uh, took me into a very deep crisis of self because I didn't know who I was anymore. Mm -hmm. um, my, my sense of, uh, you know, don't misinterpret it, but cockiness, like I can handle anything. I can look the devil in the eye. I can handle even death. You know, I'd faced death many times and all that was gone. Now I felt like I was a fragile little being blowing in the wind. And at any moment, even a bug could crush me. Mm -hmm. And it took me deep into the feminine of myself. And I, I, I know from talking to my soul, my soul said to me that you you are overly rely, over relying on your strength and you're teaching people that the way you make it through the world is to become a tough guy and that never works. Mm. And so now you get to find out what it's like to be weak. Now you get to find out what it's like to be humble. Now mm -hmm. you get to find out what it's like to feel like a woman in a patriarchal culture. So it brought me deep into my feeling state. It made me, it gave me the opportunity to really listen to my students and my patients' feelings and emotions as opposed to just telling them what to do and being rational and logical and say, mm -hmm. oh, don't be stupid, quit complaining, just do this and you'll be fine, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it was scary and it made me cry a lot and it made me really have to confront fears at every level of my being. I mean, it was really like um, being stripped naked and put on a turning pedestal in downtown Los Angeles or something. And everybody's standing there going, look at this weakling. You know, he's got nothing. Yeah. Mr. Tough guy is all of a sudden leveled. Hallelujah. And the crazy thing was that really blew my mind is it, you know, it took me about six years to rehabilitate myself to where I could lift weights without just being in chronic pain all the time. And 
the surgeon would have immediately put me on this table and said, you need, you know, major fusion in there. Um, and you know, I'm a specialist in orthopedic rehabilitation. So even to this day, I can just push on the vertebra with my finger and make it pinch my spinal cord if I'm not careful. So I have to do a lot of careful uh, balancing of my body constantly so I can function. Um, but what happened is students and people whose opinions I trusted started coming up to me and saying things like, you know, since you got hurt, you are much more approachable. And it's so nice to see the softness coming out of you. And I feel so much safer around you. And I'm like, what do you mean safer? I was always safe. I've, I've done nothing but devote my life to helping people. They said, yeah, but I don't think you realized how much fire is in you and how intense you can be and scary you can be. So I, I actually, I didn't know that I had that effect on people. I was always just thinking I was just being Paul, loving the world. But when I got to hear and see and feel how people reacted when I got more into my feminine and and stopped relying on brute strength and raw power to do things, it was really revelatory. And it, it made me realize that, um, and it, t- it did something else. It made me realize that I was out of balance. And it right. made me realize I, I, I didn't listen to my soul for too long. Mm-hmm. But what it did was in the next few years, the nature of the students coming into the Czech Institute changed drastically. And instead of getting a bunch of muscle head ass kickers that wanted to argue with me about everything and the instructors about everything and go off and just sort of use my training to impress everybody with how much they could lift and and just sort of emulate me, Mm -hmm. it brought people that were more in touch with their feeling nature and more empathetic and compassionate. And and they were much, much better coaches and therapists. Mm -hmm. So it was almost like my soul had to let me suffer from the culmination of my masculinity to bring me into balance so that I could fulfill my life's mission, which I could not have done with a bunch of silverback gorillas that were too self-centered and too focused on ass kicking and Mm -hmm. accomplishing, but not listening and feeling and paying attention to what people really need. Yeah. And you mentioned how long that took physically to rehab yourself, but that, acceptance and understanding of that balancing how long did that take was it shorter uh yeah yeah i got the picture pretty quick um i say the first year was the toughest mm-hmm. it took me about a year just to sort of get over it and say okay guess what you're you're not going to have muscles by tomorrow guess what no matter how good of a martial artist you are, even a white belt can kick your ass. It's just going to take one hit in the head and you're probably going to end up dead. Mm-hmm. Once I really realized that there was no escape from this mm-hmm. and it was just, it's too against my principles to go just get my neck surgically fixed because I know my skill level. And I know how many people I've rehabilitated with problems like that. And so I didn't want to take the easy way out. Uh, and just go get it fixed and turn myself into a machine say oh you know just replace the part so i can keep being my dickhead self um i would say the first year is what it took for me to realize it was okay to let the feminine come out of me Mm -hmm. and by the time i got 
to the end of the first year, I started getting the feedback from the people that I mentioned. So it started nourishing me to realize I'm going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And um, I've got to grow up. I've just got to grow up. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, I don't mean the, you know, I wasn't ever a person that had a hard time meeting their responsibilities or, you know, doing, being a man. Mm -hmm. I had to grow up to become a wise man. Right. That, and that's, that was my shamanic initiation. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's funny too, you know, how you're talking about being in that state and thinking, oh, everyone's going to think I'm a weakling. The, you know, example of being on the pedestal and yeah. spinning around and people judging you for that. Yeah. Um, but did you actually receive my, any judgment like that? Or was it more of the positive like, oh, you're softer and more approachable. Because I think so much no. of the time we can be in our heads about what everyone else is thinking. Realistically, they're just worried about themselves. Most of the big boys said, God, it must be scary. Or what's it like to have lost all your strength like that? They mm -hmm. almost felt fear for me. Right. That made them think, what would ha what would, how would I handle that? Yeah. So it was interesting. It was almost like I was testing the waters for them, almost like they intuitively knew they needed to make the transition, yeah, but didn't want to have to do it that way. Yeah. So there was a lot of like sort of careful questioning without, because they were trying to hide their own insecurities, but I could see right through it. But the grand majority of it was positive, especially the women. The mm -hmm. women, and that, that was the paradox for me too. Cause you know, as a man, you think a woman wants a tough, badass, go get her, make the money, good hunter. Yeah. But you find out, uh, you know, women are much more gen, not that all women are like that, but a woman's much more attracted to a man who's actually balanced internally because they're easier to get along with. They're safer. They're more reliable. And, um, they're listening. They listen better. Mm-hmm. And those are important things for a woman. So I found that women responded to me strangely, not only with much more connection, but um, women showed a lot more interest in sexual affection with me, which right. I, I thought, God, you know, I'm a pipsqueak. <laughs> These girls all <laughs> want to make love to me. What's going on? It was kind of baffling for me. Right. And so um, it just, it blew my idea. My, my idea plex apart mm -hmm. it just you know it sort of like it was like putting a a pound of c4 inside my ego and just boom it was just blown to pieces and everything i thought i knew mm -hmm. uh, about being a man and everything i thought that made me safe turned out actually not to be making me that safe and um it only made me attractive to people with the same insecurities that were playing the same game right which turned out to be the same people that were always trying to beat me at that game. Like right. the guy who kept telling me how strong he was. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, and those are your typical, what we call meatheads in the gym or, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, it's like when someone's just too full of them, themselves. Yeah. It's sort of a hyper-masculine. Yeah. Hyper-masculine. Of... Yeah. It's a good way to state it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting that, sort of the parallels between through that process, you were able to listen to your soul more deeply, which allowed you to embrace that feminine side and listen to. It was the only way out. Students. It was and, the only way out. Yeah. I could not handle that. with My, my ego was destroyed. Mm -hmm. It was my ego that got me in trouble. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my inner voice told me cause I'd landed. We were on a long seminar trip. I was exhausted. It was late at night and some guys just happened to see me walking in the door of the hotel that I was going into to teach at the conference the next day. 
And they, oh, we've seen pictures of you doing that. You got to do this. And they were just begging me to do it. And I said to them, no, I'm tired. I don't think it's a good idea right now. And they've begged and begged and begged. And, you know, please, please, we, mm-hmm. we and Marvin aren't going to get to see you once the conference starts. And so my ego broke down and said, okay, I got to please these little boys and show off for them, you know. Mm-hmm. But on the inside, I heard over and over again, don't do it. You're exhausted. Yeah. You're, something might not work out this time. Mm-hmm. And it's tricky to do. Yeah. Um, and I said, you know, to the guy, if I throw you up in the air like that, you got to hold yourself stiff as a piece of board because if you soften up, you'll fall through my hands. I can't hold on to a mushy body up over my head like that. Yeah. And the guy got scared and buckled and landed on my head full force. And it literally sounded like someone snapping a two by four. It was so loud. Oh. Anybody for five or six feet would have heard it sound like literally like a spine snapping. Mm-hmm. And it sent lightning bolts through my body. I knew instantly I was in deep trouble. Yeah. I've had a lot of bad injuries. And the instant that happened, I went, I am fucked. (laughs) Yeah. And I could feel my whole left arm went numb instantly. Um, You know, it was bad. It was like the feeling of death entering your body. But the point I'm making is my soul was telling me the whole time. Yeah. But, you know, dickhead wouldn't listen. Mm -hmm. Mr. I got to show off prove how strong I am at any cost. Yeah. And now as a coach, I mean, it seems like one of the, if not the most key thing is being a good listener, listening to the words, listening to the stories, listening to, you know, how that person's communicating. It seems like such a invaluable tool. Listening is the foundation of any real relationship. What's it like for you to have a relationship with someone that won't listen to you? Frustrating. Does it make you attracted to them? No. Does it make you want to call them up and say, let's hang out? (laughs) Definitely not. Does it make you want to coach with them? No. So listening is really the foundation of any healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. Listening is a deep form of commitment. Mm -hmm. Listening is a form of compassion. It's a form of empathy. It's even a form of passion. Mm -hmm. When you first met your girlfriend for the first few months, didn't you find yourself just listening to her intently? Just the sound of her voice was sexy, mm-hmm. looking into her eyes. It's when you stop listening that problems start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Internally and externally. Yes. And uh, trust me, I have two wives. So if I don't listen, I get outnumbered. Yeah. I can imagine. Um, in terms of, you know, that that idea of, being in a relationship and being able to love others. I think something you've said is you can only love others as much as, much as you, as you love can love yourself. yourself. And uh, you know, I'm curious to know about that process because in that sense, like as you learn to love yourself more deeply, then I imagine that brings more possibility to love more deeply other people and have more compassion. Well, you just go back to what we've just talked about. I had to really love myself enough to become the listener to the part of me that was broken and scared. Mm -hmm. So I had to deepen my love for myself because if my love for myself stopped at only being accepted by other people and being what I thought they wanted me to be, Mm -hmm. then I would really be desperate for somebody else to tell me that I was okay and make me feel good about myself, Mm -hmm. which would leave me addicted to that, which would make me eventually a challenging person to be around because I would become needy in relationships. Mm -hmm. So as I went deeper into giving myself empathy and compassion, 
and really asking my soul for guidance as to how do I heal this, then my, to do that, I had to listen more deeply than I've ever listened. So I had to practice listening at a level of depth and commitment that I never had acquired and therefore could never have shared in a relationship Mm -hmm. because I hadn't even learned to listen to myself, which is a high form of love. Mm -hmm. Having been through the experience, now when somebody else is sitting in front of me, I'm really listening to the kind of pain they're in. Instead of looking at it mechanical or as a problem to fix, I'm really listening to see what the impact on their soul is. I'm looking to see what that's done to them emotionally. I'm looking to see what part of themselves they're not willing to embrace as part of their healing because they're too trapped in their own identity. Mm-hmm. So if you just take the word listening and replace it with love, yeah. you get the same formula. Yeah. If I didn't love myself, then I would have just taken shortcuts, done a bunch of drugs and made excuses and blamed it on the other guy. Mm-hmm. You idiot. Why'd you bend your body? Mm-hmm. You know, um, why'd you get scared, pussy? You know, stuff like that. Um, if you, if let's just say that the most you can love yourself is a five out of 10, Mm -hmm. but you expect your girlfriend and your family members to love you at a eight or a nine out of 10. Well, the reality of it is, is you're asking somebody to do something for you that you're not willing to do yourself. And since the only level of love you can give yourself is a five out of 10, which is really a sailboat at half mast. Mm -hmm. You're always hungry for more because you need to catch more wind to get to where you're trying to go in life, which requires love. So what I'm saying is if if you can only bring your mast to halfway up, you're always needing somebody else to pull the mast up for you. But when you can bring your mast all the way up to 10 yourself, it means you have the capacity to generate experience and express that much love. And therefore you don't need other people to constantly prop you up, make you feel good, take responsibility for meeting your sexual needs or whatever it might Mm -hmm. be. So if you try to love somebody else at a 10 or a nine or an eight or a seven or a six, well, you're only loving yourself at a five, your ego and your soul become like a dog that's watching you feed other dogs more than it's getting Right when it's your dog Mm -hmm. and the dog gets jealous Mm -hmm. and it starts to bite other dogs Mm -hmm. and it might even bite you and say, why are you feeding everybody else's dog Mm -hmm. when I'm hungry and I'm your dog? Yeah. So what you find is that if you fake love, it always comes with a cost. And the cost is, the deeper part of you knows that you're really trying to get something that you should be giving yourself. Mm-hmm. So your love of others comes at a sacrifice to your own spiritual growth, which halts your growth. Mm-hmm. And it also creates complications in relationships because you ultimately are codependent yeah. or you're acting out the role of the victim or the saboteur or the eternal child archetype, which always creates problems. It's, going to for sure because it's it's antagonistic to individuation to becoming whole unto yourself so in that case you know becoming whole loving yourself unconditionally 10 out of 10 well you may not be able to do that unconditionally only god sure. can do that um but that, we're working to, there working towards it anyways working is, towards is... acceptance and having the tools to love yourself enough to work through your challenges 
and know when you're in above your head and you need skilled help mm. from someone that can take you beyond where your own idea structure can get you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my, on this path for myself, it's a, it's a challenging one. And at times you might question, is this worth it? Like, yeah. you know, it was, is it, um, just being ignorant to it, like more enjoyable. And I know that a lot of people, especially early on might say like, I don't know if that's like what I want to try and work towards even because it can feel so overwhelming at times. So what would you say, like, why is it worth it? Well, I'm going to ask you a question. How long you been coaching with me now? Uh, just over a year. Okay. So what if I said, I'll make you a deal. I'll give you your money back, but I'm also going to simultaneously erase everything I taught you and everything you've learned from our coaching. So you can go back to being the same Ryan that walked through the door a year ago. How would you feel about that? I would not accept that deal. Now you know why that we don't inherently want to go backwards in our spiritual development. Mm-hmm. Because at the depth of our being is God. And God wants to become what it really is. That's what the soul is. The soul is ultimately unconditional love creating the illusion of conditions to have an experience without which God cannot know itself. But the unconditional love in the soul can never be fully satiated by anything but what it really is. So true nirvana, which means to extinguish or blow out, is only capable of occurring when we have reached the point of loving and understanding that we can see even the most ugly and the most evil with the same level of love, acceptance, and compassion is the most beautiful and the most loving because we realize that is what we are and why we are that way and that it is God experiencing itself and that by loving ourselves and loving others, we are loving God. And when we realize that we don't need to externalize ourselves into the illusion of life or the maya and that we have reached the point of realizing that the only thing that can truly fulfill us is oneness with god which can't happen for a very long time many lifetimes many many lifetimes <clears throat> then we the soul can ultimately only quench its thirst by returning back to the well mm-hmm. uh, the well perfect well, I think that's a great place to leave it for today. I hope that we get to have more of these conversations. Why not? Um, is there anything that you want to share in terms of, I know you just launched a new platform. Maybe you can. I have the new Chekiva.com, C-H-E-K-I-V-A, which means a place of worship. We have our Holistic Lifestyle Coaching Level 1 course online through the Czech Institute at C-H-E-K-Institute.com. There's a lot to look through there. Um, I have over 550 videos on YouTube for free for people at youtube.com forward slash Paul C-H-E-K live, youtube.com forward slash Paul Check live. My PPS success mastery program, which is 12 lessons that I identified that are the most common roadblocks people have to get through to really achieve their potential. Uh, so it's personal, professional, spiritual success mastery. That's ppssuccess.com which you can also access through the Czech Institute. So those are the main things. Um, I don't know when your podcast will come out, but I have a Zen in the Garden workshop, a live one-day workshop here with me. Um, and the theme is um, 
stillness in action, uh, surprisingly. Yeah, that was actually the first time I met you was doing that a couple of years ago. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. So people seem to really enjoy those. It's, you know, a day of combination of inner exploration and creative uh, exercise and artistic expression in nature. Um, but yeah, so Chakiva.com is, is really cool. It's something we're really proud of. We put a lot of time, energy, and money into. Um, you know, people are welcome to go to the Czech Institute, look at all my programs, and we have the Czech Academy for those that really want to learn it and master it, which mm-hmm. is a four-year program with mentorship. And uh, that's enough to keep anyone busy for quite a <laughs> while. I mean, it takes seven years for my students to complete the training that I outlined to become a master Czech practitioner. So anybody can find something to start. I have, you know, mountains of correspondence courses and articles and my book, how to eat, move and be healthy is available either on the Institute website or Amazon. That's my most popular book. Um, I think that'll keep them going. Yeah. That's a good amount. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Paul. I have so much love for you. And I feel so grateful that our souls cross paths in this lifetime. It was divine, baby. It still is. And I have lots of love for you. Keep doing what you're doing, man. I get to watch you reliving my whole life. So <laughs> yeah. fortunately, I'm wiser now so I can say, hey, Brian, be careful about that one. <laughs> yeah, you can point out some potholes for me. Yeah, exactly. All right. Lots of love, partner. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Whether you listen to it on Spotify, Apple, or through our website, it would be great to hear your feedback and thoughts. If you're able to leave a review, it'll really help us share the message and share the podcast with more people. Thank you.